When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Hi, it's Brett Phillips here, host of The First Serve, and thank you for downloading the latest edition of Aussies Only, one of our podcast offerings here at The First Serve. You can get your weekly live tennis fix with The First Serve every Monday night on the SCN Radio Network at 7pm Eastern. All the broadcast details of how you can listen can be found at our website, thefirstserve.com.au. Welcome to Aussies Only, the first serve's deeper look inside the game at home. Talking to those inside and outside the tram lines. G'day and welcome to this week's edition of Aussies Only. All thanks to Latua Tennis. Head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on the hottest tennis apparel in the game. They've just released a brand new mask, a new hoodie and a t-shirt range. So be sure to head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on some of their brand new tennis apparel. This week on the show, we're joined by a very special guest, Jacob Grills. He joins the show to run through the results from the first week of the US Open and dive deep into his tennis journey. Your host, Jed Zetzer here alongside Jake Eames. I'm going to hand it over to my co-host to bring in Jacob Grills. Eamesy, bring him in. Yeah, thanks, Jed. Uh, again, excited for another episode and very pumped to have our guest today who pushed inside the world's top 400 um, late last year before, obviously, all the lockdowns. Jacob Grills, welcome, mate. G'day, Eamesy. G'day, Jed. Thanks for having me on, guys. Cheers for coming on, Jacob. Well, first question, have you been able to watch any of the US Open this week? And if so, what are your thoughts? Yeah, been able to watch bits and pieces. I don't have it uh, at home where I live with my brother, but uh, my parents have it at their house, so I sneak around there a little bit. Being down here in Ocean Grove, we're not in stage four lockdown, which is nice. It's only stage three, so we have a little bit more getting around to do. But I think the one that stands out is is definitely Tomo. Fourth round, pretty exciting times. He uh, had a good win against Kukushkin. And now he's got, I think, Korich, who had, who won in an absolute thriller against uh, Tsitsipas. So, yep. Tomo, I would, hate, I would absolutely hate to be Korich right now. About a month ago, two months ago, getting COVID. Winning in five against City Pass, seven six in the fifth, and then knowing that you've got Tomo next round, I hope he. Uh, I guess it'll test the. Uh, it'll test what Corona really does to your body, won't it? Absolutely. Well, he's he's going about it nicely, Tomo, isn't he? He's, I mean, it's as convincing as I've seen him play. To be honest, this week he's had a convincing win over Travaglia. He's then come up against Jurasimov, who is a really good player. And he's gone off and knocked knocked out a big player in the first round. And then he's come up against Kukushkin. And 
got the job done there as well. So, I mean, Eamsy, I don't know what you've thought about Tomo, but I've been very impressed with this first week. Yeah, I've been impressed as well. I think there's there's two parts to this. One is getting a good draw, and then two is making use of it. And uh, he, he's done really well there and gone through in um, three sets in the third round now against Kukushin. And I think it was 7-6 in the fifth with Courage. So I think uh, that, that really sets him up well for the fourth round clash. I'm personally glad he didn't get Tispasis. I think Tomo generally is, has an amazing skill to sit back and defend and kind of bait you with short balls. And I think Tispasis would have been a little bit better in handling those short balls and just, and just coming forward on them. So I think he, he's got the, the dream run at the moment. And I think if there was a, a, a chance at US to make quarterfinals, this could be you know, a huge one for him in the next couple of years. Um, hopefully we'd like to see him uh, go deeper in other slams as well, but this is a massive opportunity for him. It absolutely is. Now, Chris O'Connell, Eamsy, I know you've got a lot to do with him. He's had a marvellous win in round one, his very first Grand Slam main draw victory. And he's come up against Daniil Medvedev, top five player in the world in the second round. And tell you what, he didn't get the win, but I thought it was an awesome performance by Chris. And the way he played, just he didn't get wiped off the court. He was in most rallies. What were your thoughts on his performance? Yeah, I think obviously awesome to see him in the second round. I think that's huge. Uh, for him and his confidence and, and starting to try establish himself in terms of you know, a main draw player throughout the year in Grand Slams and huge for, for getting a bit of a cash bonus there um, yeah. that can kind of support him through and maybe, you know, maybe invest in, in having a coach on the road or something with him that's going to further help try uh, project him into the top 100. The match against Medvedev, I thought was a good one. Medvedev has got a great game to chop guys who, who don't have big serves because he just sits back and absorbs pace um, and, and obviously got a big serve himself to hold comfortably. So you see him just roll through guys like O'Connell. So I thought it was a very competitive match considering that. And uh, he had chances. He had a chance to break back at 3-4 in the third. And actually, it was, I think it was 30-40. It was a huge passing shot and... Medvedev doesn't typically have the best volleys, but he seems to just come up with it when it when it when it matters. So it was uh, it, it was really good. I think uh, it was a great experience for him and a challenging one potentially on on Louis Armstrong having such a big court. Uh, Medvedev just sat back so deep on O'Connell's serve, um, which would have been probably something O'Connell's not used to. It, it was it was hard with with that scenario and maybe O'Connell not being comfortable enough serving volleying or maybe using a drop shot a little bit more throughout the match. But um, I was super impressed the way he went toe-to-toe with him. Grills, you would have a little bit better idea of, you know, how O'Connell's transitioned through the challenger circuit and onto the, obviously, some of these majors at the moment. Um, what have been the standout things you've noticed he's improved in his game? Firstly, I couldn't be happier for Oates. I mean, he's one of the nicest guys that I've come across in the tennis circles. He's one of the most relaxed um, people going around. And I think early doors, maybe some, some key figures in tennis, maybe saw that as not being very professional. But um, after staying with him, this is probably going back three or four years ago now, um, I knew straight away that he was dead serious about the sport. It was just his, his personality is a bit... I wouldn't say shy, but just keeps to himself a little bit. 
but just such a nice guy. So I'm stoked that he's doing so well right now. And, you know, people would say that they didn't really see it coming, but, gee, he's so talented. He hits the ball so clean that um, when you get things right, um, you can really propel yourself and start doing well. And I think last year, I'm not too sure what he decided to change um, personally for himself, but from an outsider's perspective, it seems like he's just going huge on just about every single ball that he hits. Um, and in doing that, he's found a way to obviously hit enough of those shots in, which is, yeah, turn him into one of the probably the fastest rises that, that, is, that anyone's really seen in the last bunch of years, I'd imagine. I mean, I remember playing him probably a year and a bit ago um, in about March last year. And I don't know, I'm guessing he was seven, eight, nine hundred in the world and fast forward probably eight or nine months to the end of last year and he's sitting around the hundred mark. It's a pretty impressive jump. But yeah, just credit to him. Shows that when you put your head down, no matter what really anyone else thinks, if you're if you're pretty confident in doing it your own way, then go for it and and it is possible. So good on him, I reckon. I agree. He's actually up to a career high. 108 in the rankings, so he's just eight spots outside of the top 100. So it would just be be so pleasing to see him crack that top 100 and take his game to another level. That would be awesome. Uh, John Millman, Mark Polmans, and James Duckworth went out earlier in the week. Now, this was actually a really... It was almost an epic between Millman and Tiafo, a five-setter. Johnny had the two sets to one lead, but as we know, Francis Tiafo, small in size, but... Big hitting American player who's taking his game to the next level. Were either of you able to watch the match? You know, was this a match where you can read a lot into in terms of Johnny's performance? Yeah, I mean, firstly, Tiafo, what a hilarious character he is. Yeah. Such <laughs> a laugh. I remember playing a few events with him in juniors, and I never knew him very well, but just seeing him from afar, and he's just always got the biggest grin on his face. Um, so, you know, it's great that he's won. It's an absolute shame that, that Johnny had to go down because, as we all know, Johnny's one of the one of the nicest tennis guys on tour as well. Um, but, I mean, it just goes to show, like, sometimes that first set so important. That you, you know, Johnny, I think, lost the first set tiebreak, if I remember correctly, maybe 8-6. Yeah, that's it. Goes on to absolutely chop. Um, Tiafo in the next two sets like you look at if one or two points change in that first set you look at a 7-6-6-3-6-1 win to, to Milman and you think he's just cruised past so it, it shows that sometimes there's just not that much in it uh, and unfortunately for Johnny after having a great run at the US Open in the past um, yeah I guess it wasn't his time this year yeah it's a tough one I think last week Jed we we tipped uh, the Milman, Tiafo, and the Polman's uh, Giron matches, 50-50 matches, and yep. it pretty much came out that way. Both five-setters, obviously Polman's a big five-setter as well. But uh, those, those two matches really are on paper 50-50, and they came out 50-50, and you know, someone's got to come out on top. And unfortunately for the Aussie boys, uh, it wasn't meant to be this time round. Disappointing results, but I guess the way that they played, I think Polman's played a really solid game and he'll take a lot of positives from that. So, I mean, the results in itself, they'd probably be a little bit upset with, but, you know, looking at the bigger picture, some good performances being put in there. On the women's side, 
Unfortunately, none of the women went past the first round from an Australian point of view. Uh, Maddie Inglis, devastating three-set loss to a, to a seeded player who she would have loved to have beaten. Uh, Lizette Cabrera, that was another devastating loss. They're getting close, though, that group of players, Astra Sharma, Cabrera, Inglis, they're getting close to cracking the top 100 in there getting close at Grand Slam level. So I guess we just wait for that breakthrough to come for them. Uh, were either of you able to watch uh, Luke Saville and Max Purcell's first round match? No, I wasn't able to catch them either, actually. But uh, I did speak to, to Sav after they played and he said that they, they play good tennis. Um, that they're like, really happy with the match. Obviously, coming up against third seed Germans there was, uh, was a tough draw. Um, but uh, no, he was he was happy with how they played, and it's one of those things in doubles where, or like singles as well, it takes a couple of points here and there to make things, I guess, not go your way. And uh, in, in terms of the women, as you mentioned, Jed, geez, they had some rough draws. Yeah, you know, I, I thought the Aussies this year had some really good draws to give themselves an opportunity to to get through some rounds and potentially go deep. The, the girls got drawn against so many uh, good seeds and. Uh, yeah, they, they weren't quite favourites going in and a um, couple tough fights and unfortunately not coming through there. Yeah, you've, you've pretty much hit it spot on there. I must I must agree. Now, let's get down to business. Second week of the US Open's coming up. We'll dissect all the results next week, but we're here to talk to Grillsy about this journey. Jacob, tell us how you first got into tennis. Yeah. Um, look, I don't particularly remember the very beginning, I guess, of my tennis journey. I've been told that I like to play a lot of totem tennis, um, just smack <laughs> all around the, the string attached to it as hard as I could until my arm fell off. But mum and dad both played, I guess, um, at a club level. When I say at a club level, I mean at a club level too. My dad has got golf <laughs> back, which I still get into him about now. Um, but he was down at the courts most weekends and I guess one or two nights a week playing in the social comp, probably knocking back a few Jack Daniels as he goes to. <laughs> <laughs> Not of course for the tennis or the drinks, but uh, it was always a laugh. So I guess we were always just hanging around the courts as, as young kids. And I mean, I, I just loved all kinds of sports growing up and uh, I guess tennis was the one that really stuck. So um, had a crack with it and, and pretty pretty happy with my decision and, and the fact that I've been able to, you know, play it for pretty much my entire life so far and, and I'll continue to do that. Was it, uh, how was it, I guess, through your development years and, you know, being down Ocean Grove there, it's obviously an hour or so journey from, from Melbourne Park. Did you, did you train mostly where you live or were you doing a lot of travelling at the younger age as well in, into, into Melbourne? Yeah, I mean... I look at it, I, was, I think I was pretty fortunate. From door to door, and it's kind of peak hour traffic, it was, um, which is what we have to travel through most days to get into training on time and come home. Um, it's you know an hour and a half to two hours in the car. So obviously I couldn't do that every day. Um, so there's a couple of things really. I felt like I had um, some great support down here with a couple of coaches growing up um, in Calvin McLean and uh, Mark Fisher. And then... When I started going to Melbourne heaps, um, I'm also lucky that um, both my parents have lots of siblings, so I've got a huge family. When I say huge, I mean like 40 plus cousins. Um, so I pretty much, 
house hopped between uncles and aunties' places um, from when I was 16 or 17 years old in Melbourne. I stayed with my uncle and auntie and then um, started living with a couple of my cousins. Um, I'm really good friends with Andy Harris and I lived at his place. And then I spent two years up in Brisbane um, training up there when I was uh, maybe three years ago, probably when I was 21, 22 years old. Um, and again, I had family up there, so I stayed with my uncle and auntie. So um, it, was, it was great for me that I was able to do that. And in a sense, it was also great that having such a huge family, it was great to, uh, to be able to spend time with. That's awesome. Awesome that you were able to have so many connections, I guess, that were able to help you out. Now, just talking about those sort of years, those teenage years going through your juniors, you were playing in, well, you were training in a group with Harry Bouchier, Mark Polmans and Omar Jaseka under the eyes of Wayne Arthurs. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and what you gained and what you learned from that experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I learned so much. I was, um, I was, I had a great relationship and still do with uh, Wayne Arthurs as my coach. So he started coaching me when I was, as a guest, probably about 16 years old. And, um, Daniel Guccione is the other boy that, that uh, was in the group. So, yeah, we all got coached by Wayne and we all loved it. Um, he taught us so much. We were fortunate enough at the time that Tennis Australia would send away um, a coach to most of our trips, being that there were um, four, I guess, kind of highly ranked juniors. I was always probably the worst ranked player of the lot. So I would always tag along as much as I could and... Yeah, spent plenty of weeks and months away and Wayne kind of just taught us the ropes of obviously he spent so many years on tour um, and just taught us the little things, things you take for granted, um, just how to prepare for matches day in, day out, just things that you kind of don't see or don't get from a standard tennis coach when you're talking about your forehand or your backhand or your serve, um, off-court things, just to make sure you're in the right headspace and you're not wasting too much energy doing stupid stuff off-court. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to go through. We, we spent weeks at a time together. Um, so, yeah, he taught me all kinds of things, really, um, from a tour perspective, not only just the on-court stuff. Yeah, obviously, um, Wayno's game is completely different to yours. But as you touched on there, the, the importance, I guess, of, of having the influence of someone who's actually gone through what you've been through I guess, and then what you're trying to achieve is is massively important there. Did you find particularly like, I guess, having a, you know, ex-pro being on tour was like like massively essential for you, I guess, in developing your game to be ready for the futures and challenges circuit? I think it, it was really important. I still think that if you haven't been a pro tennis player, you, you still have a chance at being a coach and, and have plenty to give. But I think that it was just more of a matter of, there was never any doubt. Most of the things that Wayne would kind of say, you just you just take it and go, well, that's the way it's got to be. Mm. Um, and you don't necessarily question too much because, I mean, what do you have to question? You're 16 years old, you're, you're traveling overseas for the first time and you've got a bloke who's played Davis Cup sitting next year and traveled the world um, for a living playing the sport. I mean, how often are you going to be right compared to how often he's right? So I guess the doubt wasn't really there, which was, um, which was a massive part when, you, when you're pretty confident in what you're doing. 
yeah, I think that goes a long way. And as I think, as we touched on earlier, just with Oaks, he's pretty self-driven and he's, he's very confident in what he is doing. Um, but that's at least what it seems from the outside anyway. Um, he's confident in the way he's going about things. And, and now you're seeing the rewards from it. You're seeing that, you know, people have come in for their, their two minutes of he's tried to change the way he goes about things, but he's confident in the way he's doing it and, and he's going after it and, and the results are coming. Absolutely. I think confidence is a major, major key aspect. If you don't have the confidence, you probably aren't going to be able to succeed in the capacity that you are wanting to, in my opinion. Uh, Jacob, how did you find the transition from the juniors to the pro circuit? It was all right for me. I, I never really um, had a great um, junior career, I would say. I, yeah, it didn't get the most outstanding results. My kind of, I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't call them breakthrough years at all, but um, some of the, I guess, bigger results that I had at the time um, was around when I was 16 or 17 years old when I started to get my first um, ATP points. And at that stage, I think in the perspective of most, I wasn't really knocking on the door at, at futures level. Um, and I was more, I guess, uh, categorised in, in junior events, not even in the slams, maybe grade one events kind of at the peak at the time. Um, so I think my first ATP points came when I was, I missed out on playing the French Open qualies. I wasn't ranked high enough, so I went, I went and played a future in Slovenia. Um, and that's where I qualified and kind of got my first couple of points. And then, I mean, at the time, I lost to Bolte in the second round and I was just over the moon that I got my first point. And who would have known that fast forward a few years and I'd be living with Bolte and having a laugh with him. But, uh, yeah, I think after that, I, I came back to Australia um, for the Aussie swing and I was, I was a lot more confident with myself that, you know, I can, I can qualify at futures levels and I can um, win a match here or there. So... Then I managed to um, get five, six or seven, I don't even know, a bunch of points at the Aussie Futures. And, and that was kind of the end of juniors for me. The following year, I never really looked towards playing any junior events other than the Aussie Open um, at the start of the year. And that in itself was an experience, one that I wouldn't mind having back, must I say. I was as nervous as you could be walking out onto the, um, on one of the outside courts at Melbourne Park. I remember I was shaking. Just, just little things, things that you don't expect. I mean, my parents hadn't seen me play a whole lot at that stage. I was 17. They probably hadn't, from going from seeing me play every single day, like literally every single day um, when I'm probably 12, 13, 14, 15, to, okay, Jay's training in Melbourne now. We, we can't get up there, whatever. And now he's travelling interstate overseas. We, we don't see him play. Um, and then all of a sudden they rock up at the start um, of my first round match at the Aussie Open. I was like, oh, I wonder if dad thinks I've improved. And I go out <laughs> get wiped off the court and just come off thinking, oh, I've just, I've just ruined it all. I've ruined the last three years or last two years I've been in Melbourne traveling. Dad's going to think I've gotten worse. <laughs> but I don't know. Like that's just, I guess that's just a teenage perspective at the time. I didn't know that I'd still be playing four years down the track. I didn't know I'd still be playing six months later. I knew I still loved the sport, but at the end of the day, it's bloody expensive. And 
you don't know if, you, if you're going to keep winning. You don't know if you're going to lose a few matches here or there and that could be the end of it. So, yeah, I guess you just put kind of some stupid pressure on yourself at times. And I, I just remember so clearly now, just looking back at the first round, the junior Aussie Open, just thinking, what was I even worried about? But part of it, I guess. Yeah, that's a tough experience there, isn't it? And it, it's it's actually very interesting for me because there is two pathways really that people tend to choose throughout the juniors is is one, follow the ITF kind of uh, route or, or or two, kind of skip it and, and try, prepare and get ready for the futures. But there is an element of the, I guess, the junior grand slams where it puts you in the environment where all eyes are on you. You're playing some other kids are the best in the world and it is I guess quite replicable to you know to the majors of, of men's games as well or, or women's or whatever did you feel like the experience at the slams though helped that transition into the pro circuit yeah I mean I didn't get to play the French Wimby or the US um, but just being around the Aussie Open for sure playing when there's a when there's actually a crowd that's mm. a huge experience and just the bars in itself is massive but i mean it's it's a little bit different i guess the aussie open you know i train there every day um so i knew the grounds pretty well it was really just the the crowd factor that was the difference and in all honesty tennis australia do a pretty good job of of, um connecting some of the younger players in the academy to hit with some of the best players in their off days while they're playing in the main event so i was hitting at the time i'm sure i I hit with Djokovic on one of the outside court and um, there's plenty of plenty of people that come out to watch and get their tennis ball signed and all this kind of stuff. So you have you have that buzz, even though literally not one person in the crowd is looking at your end. You still think that <laughs> think that you know the claps and the cheers are, are for you. But um, <laughs> yeah, from like a playing perspective or training, I think it's just it's just the crowd that was different. I knew the the courts inside out. Um, and yeah, when I was on the court, on the practice court, I felt just the same buzz as I did on the match court, really, um, when I was that young. So yeah, never got to play the French. Um, went there and trained for a week, and and just thought it was the best thing ever. And that's uh, I actually watched Tiafo play there, and that's where I saw him just be the biggest character of all time. Um, and it was it was kind of then that I thought it would be so great if if this guy one day, you know reaches his potential and gets to the top of the sport because what better thing to have than someone with the biggest smile in the world sitting at the top of, of the sport, just great ambassador for it. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's, an, yeah, some great insight as well. And into, you mentioned you, your training and the way that Tennis Australia linked some of the academy players with the top players in the world. I want to ask you, who have you hit with do you think that probably you know, has come out onto the court with the highest level of intensity in a training session? Personally, like, there's, there's one and one only. It's Rafa. But I, I've got to say that I've never hit with Dominic Team, but I, I don't think I've seen anybody train harder. I know growing up, everyone was always like, Rafa, Rafa, Rafa. Um, and I have a pretty funny experience with Rafa, actually. I was, I'd come, Eamsley would know, I was, I was hitting with Mav Baines um, at the Aussie Open, just outside on a practice court with Wayne. And we had done like a three-hour practice session. And Wayne gets a phone call at the, right at the end of our practice session. It was about 5 p.m. Or it was about 4 p.m., I don't know, in the afternoon. And, and they said, uh, on the phone, they said, does Grillsy want to hit with Rafa tonight? 
And, and Wayne has literally like hung up the phone and said no. And I thought it was a bit odd just the way he was behaving. And I was like, Wayne, what, what, who was that? And he's like, oh, look, they were asking if you want to hit with Rafa. And I was like, you said no? And he's like, yeah, mate, like you're cooked. You've been out here for three hours. We trained two hours this morning. Like Rafa's going to want a good hit. I'm like, Wayne, call him back up right now. I'm hitting with Rafa in half an hour. I don't care what you say. So he called him back up and straight away I was, I was hitting with Rafa on, the in, on an indoor court. There was no crowd. Uh, I'm not sure what year it was. It was a few years back, but he'd lost to, uh, he'd beaten Tim Smycheck, um, I think in the first or second round, like seven, five in the fifth. So I've walked out there at exactly five o'clock or whenever we were meant to start and no sign of Rafa. And I was like, oh, fuck, what's going on? Um, I brought a Spanish guy with me, Carlos Cuadrado who I knew had, had grown up quite a bit with Rafa and played a lot with him. So I thought it'd be a perfect like, connection. You know, Rafa won't think I'm some idiot. He'll, he'll know Carlos and all the happy days. And yeah, 5.15, 5.20, 5.25. I was like, ah, Rafa's not coming. I guess we're done. Anyway, Rafa walks out at 5.30, half an hour late. Doesn't apologise. Doesn't say a word. Walks over, shakes my hand. Literally doesn't say hi to me. Shake Carlos's hand, who, who at the time, I'm of the belief that these guys are like best buds growing up, says hello to Carlos, but barely acknowledges him. I'm like, what is going on? Like, he's half an hour late. He's like, looks like he's cracked the poops. Goes, sits down on the changeover, and Uncle Tony is just ripping into him, like ripping into him. I've got no idea what he's saying. So Carlos is translating it for me, and Carlos is like, mate, He's just saying how, you know, he wasn't trying hard enough for the whole match last night. I'm like, give this bloke a break. He's just won 7-5 in the fifth. Um, <laughs> Rafa comes out on court, hits the first handful of balls up and down the middle, like just normal, and then just starts unleashing. And I'm standing about a metre inside the back fence um, or the back netting because it was the indoor courts. Um, and I'm hitting volleys shoulder height. And Rafa's staying on the baseline, just full-blooded forehands. Um, no top spin as hard as he can. I'm like, this is the worst practice I've, like, I've ever been a part of. What is going on? But, of course, the intensity was through the roof. The ball wasn't going in. There's no denying that. Um, anyway, we got to five minutes in and, and Rafa seemed to be calming down a bit. Another five minutes went by. We have a drink. Carlos starts chirping up a bit, says a couple of words. They start talking about their childhood together. I don't know, a couple of funny stories come up. And then half an hour later, Rafa's just completely normal training mode again. The intensity's still through the roof, but he's actually hitting the ball in. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't care what anyone says. I don't think... I've ever seen anybody hit the ball with as much power off the ground as, as Rafa can do. Obviously, he doesn't do it every day on the match court because he's got to hit the ball in. Like None of these balls were going in. Um, but, God, he, he can have a crack at it. And the intensity was, was definitely next level. But it was just a, it was a hell of an experience that I didn't really know what to think about walking off the court 45 minutes later. I was <laughs> head jump. What was that all about? Geez, that is a cracker of a story, Grillsy. And you are right. He's in practice, he seems to unload way more than what he does in matches. And he kind of tees off to the corners a bit as well. Um, 
How about, how about you there and that, I guess, experience? Because your job is really to put the ball on the court. You're not really trying to compete um, too hard. You're trying to put the ball on the dime for him. Was that, that must have been hard when the ball was flying around that quick. Yeah, like, I was grabbing myself. I was just thinking, God, like, just give the bloke a hit. But then because it was so extreme, it was also a little bit like the first 30 seconds or a minute when he started unleashing, I was like, this is weird. But because it was that extreme, I was like, surely Rafa can't expect me to put like full length volleys, like 30 meter volleys back in the right spot for him. Like I've never practiced this shot in my life and surely he doesn't expect anyone to be able to do that. Um, But we got to the end of the session and he's like, mate, um, can you come and warm me up tomorrow? And I was like, well, yeah, I can, but like, mate, are you going to hit the ball in? <laughs> Obviously, there was a crowd and stuff the next day, and it was a warm-up for his match, so it was completely different. He was uh, hitting everything in. He was Not that he wasn't professional in that session. It was just a different perspective, I guess. Um, he obviously hit a lot more balls in the next day, and I was probably more nervous the next day when there was people watching and, and the fact that he was, I guess, in a sense, taking it a little bit more seriously, getting ready for his, for his next match. I've got no idea who he's playing now. Um, but you'd be able to find it because I know that he, he definitely um, beats my check. I'm pretty sure it was 7-5 in the fifth the night before. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't that nervous once it was that extreme. I think if, it had, if he had been hitting it big and maybe missing a little bit, then I'd probably be, oh, I'm not really doing my job out here. But at, when, it, when it got to that, it was, just, it was almost a laugh. I was just scratching my head down, what is this about? Yeah, it would have been, it would have been it would have been an absolute experience, and uh, you know, you, a couple of years ago, young guy, you would have been nervous. Yeah, would have been an awesome experience. Drillsy, obviously, the Oz Open is and the Aussie Summer is, you know, obviously a time for you where you get to train with some of the best players. Is that your favourite time of the year? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. Um, I love it because through December I can get home quite a lot. Um, which is great, and, uh, and I'm not. I guess it's our off season, which isn't really an off season. It's like come home on a few weekends, but just when the when the players start rolling into Melbourne Park, and you know, I don't even have to be playing. I can walk around, and I could finish training and walk around and see. I don't know, Chile shooting with someone, and then whoever, like all these top players, just walking past. They're in the gym. There's good atmosphere. There's it's just there's a buzz. It's like. The season's about to get going again. Everyone's super happy. Everyone's ready to go. Um, plus, you, you add the fact that it's it's at home for us. It's in Australia. There's, there's crowds. Um, everyone wants the Aussies to win. It's, there's nothing better than going to going to watch. I mean, I've never played main draw Aussie Open, but just going to watch. I think one of the best experiences I had was sitting in the crowd watching Alex Bolt show court three um, when he beat Jill Simon and. <laughs> just that itself you don't even have to play and you get a buzz just watching so yeah it's by far the best time of the year in, in my opinion yeah it's it is a buzz that the, the, the fans can feel it that the players can feel it and, and melbourne park seems to really come alive but there is a lot of time throughout the year i guess where there are a lack of i guess tournaments in australia for professional tennis players like yourself do you feel that Australians potentially are disadvantaged from the, the tournament schedule structure? Yeah, there's, I mean, 
there's a few ways you can look at it. Dis- disadvantage to who, you know? Disadvantage to the European players, absolutely. Disadvantage to the, the guys living in Africa, probably not. So, I mean, it depends, I guess, your perspective on it. But, I mean, if we had more tournaments, of course, it would be, it'd be so much nicer. I mean, the whole of America, seemed, I've only just realised in the last few years that you can go and live in America and you can stay there all year round and play tournaments. Like, a mm. lot of Americans don't even have passports. <laughs> Like they just play at home all the time, and that'd be sick in Australia. Um, and we we probably do have the the capacity and the ability to do it here. And I know that players um, try to get together and and tell I guess Tennis Australia or whoever it is to put more events on it. Um, doesn't really seem to happen, which is I guess frustrating. But yeah, it's tough to travel. You t- you chat to a few players, and then when you're overseas and you're halfway through like a three month trip. And, and they go, what's next for you? And you lay out four or five tournaments in a row and they start laughing at you and you go, well, what are you laughing at? And they go, well, I'm playing here and I'm going home for a week and, and then I'm getting back on a 30-minute flight and they'll come and play two more weeks and then I'll go home. And then you kind of let them know that it takes you three days to get home and they go, yeah, okay, I understand. You've got to just keep playing, I guess. And while you're over there, you can't just go home every second week. I mean, if we had millions of dollars, it would be a different story, but... Obviously, that's not the reality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In in light of that, do you think the ITF circuit needs changes? Do you think there are some changes that can be made, even outside of sort of, you know, the travel aspect for Aussies? Do you think there are other changes that can be made to make the tour better? Yeah. Um, look, I try not to really dwell on it too much. I think it's horrible the way it is. Um, I'm, I'm so sure that things could be run way differently. The, the, the fact that there is an ITF and ATP just um, could baffles me, really. Like, why do we need all these different um, entities kind of working against each other? Like, there's no communication there. Um, just the, the stupidity of what happened in all of last year with the, with the different ranking systems and this, is, it just makes no sense. And if there was a one united kind of um, association that, for the players um, and I guess for all of the players it's easy for me to say you know I'm, I'm 400 in the world um, of course you could argue that my opinion's a bit biased towards myself um, but yeah there's got to be I'm convinced there's a better way to have a, a different system um, where prize money is drastically improved for the lower ranked players and there's more events that are available to play or yeah, even if there's not, like if you need the, the international travel, I get that. Like you, you want you want to have people playing a similar standard um, that they're at. So you give everyone a bit more money and they can take a coach with them or they can have a proper schedule or that you give someone the ability to, to actually fly home from Europe and then fly back there in, a, in, a, in three or four weeks' time. Of course, of course there's better ways to do it. Um, it, yeah, you know, you see Forbes every year, you see Federer, Rafa, Joker, you know, top 10 paid athletes or top 15 paid athletes along with LeBron, Messi, Ronaldo, and then you, and Tiger Woods, whoever, all those guys, they're all up there together. And then you go look at like the, the 200th best, uh, basketball salary. And then you go look at the 500th best golfer and he's making half a million dollars. And you go look at the, I don't know, 200 highest paid or three or four hundredth highest played soccer player in the world. And then you go look at the four hundredth best tennis player in the world and he's getting 
30 grand. It's like, where did we go so wrong? There has to be, I mean, I haven't done the maths, but there has to be a different way to do it that, that is more sensible, really. I just think it's, it's just embarrassing that it, it is what it is. But I mean, what's one? Yeah, there's only so much you can do, really. 100%. There's a huge disparity in, in, in I guess, financial incentives for, for players like yourself you know, two to 400. Um, it's, it's amazing when, when you can push inside that top 100, your, I guess, level of income per year just skyrockets. But I think guys like yourself, you have to be on a decent wage and you have to be on a wage as well on top of paying for expenses um, because what, what, what the struggle is as well for, for you, a lot of your time, unless you're supported by um, Tennis Australia, um, you, you're going to have to, get to a point as well where you start investing in a coach and you know potentially a physio with you we, we saw oaks you know by himself uh, at, at us open taking on Medvedev. you know like no one in the crowd couldn't didn't have a coach with him didn't have a physio um so it's there's definitely easy money filtered through to, to the itf and challenger circuits it's slowly increasing but probably not enough what about the way that you feel um you know people run the events is because my opinion as well is that there's there's a lot of times that you know some of these events on these tours don't try and throw an event that is an attractive event for people to come and watch um so a lot of times you're playing matches in 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 kind of the middle of nowhere or in front of small crowds uh, purely because the event really hasn't tried to you know drive fan participation to the event to, to watch some amazing players which if they paid attention you'd probably see half of them uh in a slam throughout the year well that and that's it right there i mean semi-final at melbourne park in march of the future a small future on clay i was playing oaks like there wasn't there literally there was my coach at the time um, my dad who'd driven up to watch um, and my cousin that I was living with watching. And, you know, you fast forward, I don't know, six, 12 months, whatever, not even nine months. And, and you've got thousands of people kind of there watching, paying attention to him. And it's, it's not that the level of tennis is, of course it's better. The guys at the top, like Federer, those guys, of course, there's a much, much better standard of tennis, in my opinion, especially the, the top three or four than, than the rest. But, yeah, it's, I don't know, mate. It's, it's just, it's baffling that, that you, can, you can have one or two people watch somebody um, and six, nine months later have thousands of people watch the same person and, 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 they're, and they'd just be genuine interest. And that's, that just proves that it's not the, it's not, the level of tennis it's people if they find out oh there's a semi-pro or a pro event on and oh the winner gets two grand or the winner gets three grand it's like well i guess they're not that good but why would i come and watch i've got better mm. things to do with me day um and overseas a lot of the to be fair a lot of the tournament organizers um i think you know actually kind of want the best for the players but when they're given absolutely nothing from the from their kind of like governing bodies um, in their country to put on a good event. Like, what, what do you expect, you know? Um, yeah. I feel like the money just doesn't filter down and then and then subsequently the, the interest, I guess, dwindles, but not necessarily because the standard is, is that much worse. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because 
I mean, especially someone ranked, you know, anywhere between 80 and 100 in the world, they're earning mega, mega money. And you've got players, you know, between two and 400 who are earning very little money. And you often see players ranked in that, you know, two to 400 bracket beating players ranked 80 to 100. So the standard I feel between players ranked, you know, in that one group to the other is not that significant. So it's very interesting that, the one group are earning, you know, millions or, you know, mega, mega money and the other groups essentially earning nothing. So it's very, it's a very interesting, um, you know, comparison to, to just compare those two groups. But Jacob, back to you, Um, you're only in your early twenties and your results in the last 18 months would suggest that you're starting to reach a much higher level. You're rising up the rankings inside the top 400 for the first time and you're going deep into challenger draws, you've won some futures events. Do you believe that this COVID break, I mean, it's obviously come at an, you know, a bad time for everyone, but in terms of your tennis career, it couldn't have come at the best time considering the trajectory your career was going in. Do you feel that this COVID break could affect your tennis? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's no doubt that it's going to affect my tennis. I've been training kind of as much as I can I haven't been going to Melbourne a whole lot because um, the restrictions up there and it's all a bit messy down here. Um, fortunately, um, I've got a good friend down here, Frank Moser, who's played at a very high level himself. Um, and we've been able to hit quite a bit. But yeah, from like a training perspective, I mean, it's again, just I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you can't, you kind of ask yourself what. What do you what do you have to give? There's you come home, like I came home from overseas and you you kind of scrapping for money a bit playing all these futures and challenger events and it's like well I'm faced with realistically probably three to six months ahead of me with no income and I'm I know that there's people a lot worse off than myself out there but you're like well you know do you, do you pay for your coach to still train with you every day? Just little things like that, and kind of, of course, it plays a, a quite a big role in your in your your training, which then will affect me at some stage down the track on court. But yeah, everyone's everyone's in it differently. I, I had a Skype call with a with a Spanish bloke who'd um, who'd been locked in his little apartment for two weeks. He'd been out to the grocery store, and he's got a treadmill at home. And he said the only form of exercise I'm getting is running on a treadmill every day. And I look at that, and I think, well. Yeah, I can't have my coach with me at the moment, but maybe having a hit of tennis with my mate is, is still better than being stuck at home running on a treadmill. So, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to, to have a, cl- a clear way to look at it, I think. It just depends who you compare yourself to. So, um, I'm pretty lucky that, you know, the beach is close by. I've been able to get a lot of time at home that I don't normally get. And, yeah, still been trying to get in as much training as I possibly can, but... Um, maybe it's probably less than, than what I would do if I was uh, at, an, at an actual event overseas. Yeah, what's well, tricky, isn't it? You don't want to burn yourself out, but you just touched on there. It is a good time, I guess, to be at home. And uh, I've, I've heard your surfing's getting better and you're obviously doing some, some coaching down there to save a bit of money. <laughs> My surfing couldn't get worse, mate. <laughs> oh, there's, there's only one way up. And uh, you mentioned uh, to me the other day, Grilzy, that uh, you're coaching working with some, some good kids down there in the Grove too. So obviously that's good to save some money when the tour comes back. Has there any indication or is there any indication of when you'll be back on the road again? I know Oaks 
after losing to Medvedev the other day, is heading over to France for a challenger. Have you scoped out any tournaments? Yeah, I've scoped them out, and no, there's nowhere I'll be travelling in the near future. Um, mm. I think, generally speaking, at, at 400, I'm probably not getting into challenger events now that there's only one challenger or maybe two challengers on every week. Um, I'm assuming that, and going off what I've seen in the most recent draws in Czech Republic, they're all reasonably strong. Um, and then am I going to head to America right now to go play a futures event where I'm most likely going to lose money or break even and then come home and, uh, and quarantine for a couple of weeks? I, I just I can't, see the, um, I can't see that being a very good option either. So I don't think I'll be going anywhere in the near future. I'm hoping that Tennis Australia um, find a way to get some events on, even if they're not that strongly um, directed towards ranking. But just prize money events, and then hopefully when things kind of ease off again, maybe the start of next year in, in all reality is probably where my head's at, to be honest, where the tour will start again. I can't see myself playing a, a, uh, a meaningful match, or not meaningful. I'll, I'm sure I'll play little matches here or there that are meaningful, but not really ranking-driven. Just touching on the ranking as well, I've, I haven't heard anything um, of recent times. What's happening with the ranking at the moment? Because it seems like a really tricky situation uh, with, with some challenger, challenger events going on. So have they frozen your ranking um, at, at 460 or whatever it is? Or is it, just, is it just ticking away at the moment? That's a great question. That's definitely something that I should look more into. But... I haven't looked into it purely because it's not going to affect my decision to go and play or not to go. Okay. Um, I know that they were talking about when the uh, US Open was coming up, they were talking about how they're going to start the event if only some players could come and play it. Um, and there was kind of lots of stuff in the pipeline. I don't really know what's going on with the ranking system, to be honest, and I'm not going to pay too much attention to it because it's simply not going to change um, the way I guess I approach the next few months course it'll be a huge factor when i genuinely get back playing real matches but at the moment if i know the the answer to that it doesn't change my daily life at all girls do you have you set yourself any goals for when the tour returns or are you sort of just waiting until you know you know exactly when you're going to be able to play and then you look at goals to be honest i've I don't know what it is about me. I've never really um, set set that many goals, in all honesty. There's, there's so many unknowns that I think, especially in the tennis world, that you just you can't account for that putting a putting a goal on a ranking or a, or a result in an event, um, of course, like you want to do well. But, you know, if I say I want to be top 300 in the world by the end of next year, all well and good, but... If I got to 290 and, there, and I lost five first-round matches, you know, I'd be spewing that I should be 260. So, mm. yeah, I don't really have any goals, mate, to be honest. When I want to keep doing well and when I, get to, when I get a chance and I'm out on the match court again, in reality, my goal is to kind of win those matches. And if there's a few events um, in the near future that I want to get into, um, maybe my goal is to, to get into those events. But... Yeah, obviously making Grand Slam qualities is probably the first step um, or the next step that I need to take. So that, that ranking is 250 in reality. 
um, getting there, 10 different ways to get there and winning is, is obviously the fastest way to do it. So it doesn't really matter what you play, I guess. Grilsy, mate, you've, uh, you, you take everything in your stride so well. You know, everyone loves you out there on the, on the tour and obviously um, back home as well. You know, many people won't know probably about you as well on the tour. You're still ticking off a degree as well. So I think you, you really are a great role model for, for young juniors trying to, I guess, you know, achieve that, that goal of making the top 100 in the sport. And, mate, I do believe that your, your best tennis is, is still ahead of you. Um, so uh, good luck and, and thanks so much for joining us here today. No worries, Eamsy. You're a legend, mate. I appreciate the chat. And thank you too, Jed. Um, it's been nice to meet you, mate. And glad we could get on here and have a chat. A fascinating journey with Jacob Grills. Very interesting and a classic story with the King of Clay, Rafa Nadal. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Aussies Only. Head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on their brand new collection. Another week, another edition in the books. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Aussies Only. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to all our weekly content, including past editions of Aussies Only, as well as our dedicated commercial radio program each Monday on SEN that you may have missed at 7pm Eastern. Crunching the numbers and in the huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.